You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. So the anthology, I'm very, very proud of it. It is multicultural. It has 
fiction and nonfiction, and it has stories from writers from Haiti, Trinidad, Dominican Republic, and India. So this is a global look at the experience of Alzheimer's. Also, it's a book that, like my novel, my novel was mostly a love story set against the background of Alzheimer's. And this is a book that really celebrates the love, the loyalty, and the devotion that families call on as they care for people with Alzheimer's. There's a very, very moving piece of the book written by a journalist who was living with Alzheimer's. And so um, what buoyed me, and I think what kept me from being overly depressed as I was researching this, was that so many families found um, their love, and their loyalty, and their actually even their relationships with the person who had Alzheimer's deepened um, through the process of caregiving. The tone of the book is love, laughter, tears. Mm -hmm. And um, Lauren and Katia are going to read two fictional pieces. I'm going to read a little section from an essay I wrote that deals, that, that describes my visiting a friend, a neighbor of mine, who was diagnosed with dementia, and how we actually had the most intimate conversations that we had ever had. And then I'm going to follow that by reading a, a short um, piece called Fear and Laughter by Lisa Friedman, and it's how families deal with dementia and Alzheimer, Alzheimer's and how laughter um, is often the weapon. This is from Be Here Now. This is during a visit that I made to my, my former neighbor. Her name is May. And I brought a picture of myself as a little girl, um, a six-year-old um, in Greensboro, North Carolina, standing with my mother and father um, to show her. And that sort of stimulated her to tell me stories about her own life. And she said, I was daddy's favorite. The favorite, he told me that, she says proudly, telling me where she's from, she's telling me who she is. Coherence and memory and confidence return as May tells me about her family's farm in Wilson, North Carolina. Hating the farm but loving her family. Reading the books brought at Christmas time by her mother's sister, Aunt Sue, from Newark, New Jersey. I knew I didn't want to keep working on the farm. None of us did. Daddy and Mama didn't even want that for us. And I got in my head that I was going to be a secretary. And so she became one, working at the Pentagon for 40 years until her retirement. She'd come to Washington and taken the civil service test, the successful passing of which in the 1950s and 60s was a nearly hollow entry into the middle class for generations of African-American strivers like May and Jimmy, her deceased husband. If you had a good government job, was felt back then, you were set for life. Why do I feel so close, so connected, just by the recitation of her past? I sit with an 80-year-old woman who is unsure of who I am, trying to discover who she is. In those moments, I feel the deepest tenderness for me and for myself. And after years of being her neighbor, this is the most intimate conversation May and I ever had. And then she asked, pointing a spindly finger at me and looking at the photo, you Jimmy's sister, right? No, May, I'm Marita. You and Jimmy live near me. Oh, that's right. May whimpers, I miss Jimmy. It's so hard. I sit here waiting for him to come back. Why did he leave me? I don't know, May. I don't know. He just had to go. He was sick, and he had to go. And I found that visiting her 
um, actually lifted me in ways that I really couldn't explain. Um, I think because I was not her daughter, there was no ghost in the past hovering over our interactions. I could simply take her as she was. And um, I knew that anything could happen. We might sit there silently, but the meetings were extremely um, meaningful for me and nurturing. Um, fear and Laughter by Lisa K. Friedman. Our worst fear has recently come to pass. The dementia ward of the veteran's home, where my father had been living, transferred him to a psychiatric hospital. But when I met my mother there on the day they brought him over, I wasn't really surprised to see her waving across the hall with a big smile on her face, about to laugh. We're a family of laughers. We laugh when we're happy, when we're angry, and most of all, when we're frightened. That's him, she said, chortling and pointing to the ambulance in the bay. He just arrived, and he's mad as a wet hen. But the ambulance driver said he didn't slug anyone, so that's an improvement. They wheeled my father up. Hi, Dad. I touched his hand, which was locked down under a thick restraining belt. His sweatpants were stained with food. The socks on his feet twisted and wrong. He looked at me through the blue eyes I've been looking into 49 years. I smiled at him and winked. He went back. He is 75 and in perfect health, if you don't count his brain. He's had dementia for a few years, but things got worse after an adverse drug reaction. They pulled the gurney away. We'll meet you inside, I yelled. My father craned his neck and answered, two, four, 17. My mother and I followed someone into the admitting office to do the paperwork. We brought his medical records, I told the nurse, reaching across the desk to where my mother sat stalwart. I wiggled my fingers for the papers, but my mother only glared at me. Mom, pass me the records, she shook her head. The nurse moved away, ostensibly to retrieve the form. I leaned toward my mother. What are you doing? My mother gripped her purse with two hands. I don't want them to have a bad impression of your father, she said. I reached for her purse. She held tight. I pulled. We probably shouldn't have an altercation, I said, pausing. It might look bad. My mother smiled. Look bad? We're in a mental hospital. Who cares? We both began to laugh, gently at first, and then with increasing gusto. By the time the nurse returned, it took all of our shared strength to stop. The nurse handed us an information sheet. This is the number of the telephone on the ward, she said, pointing with her pencil. Call this number anytime and ask to speak with your husband, she explained, looking kindly at my mother. Later, we sat with my father on the ward, trying not to cry. For months, professionals had been saying that he'd probably need to go to the psychiatric hospital, but we closed our minds to that possibility. My mother declared she would not survive it, and now here we were. We sat on either side of him, distracting ourselves with his food tray. I cut up the chicken and put the loaded fork into my father's hand. My leg bounced off his. Something was there. There's something in Dad's pocket, I informed my mother. Put your hand in there and pull it out, will you? She crossed her eyes. I'm not doing it. You do it. I held my breath and reached in, and then extracted a brightly colored stuffed bowling pin. I held it up and met my mother's disbelieving stare. That did it. We collapsed into gales of wrenching laughter again, hiding behind our hands and lowering our heads into our collars. Stop, my mother begged with her eyes flooding tears. Stop or they won't let us out. I got up and walked away, wiping my eyes. I'm 
every other visitor, splotchy with emotion and bereavement. When I regained my composure, I returned to the table. My mother had stepped into the bathroom. My father was eating his napkin. Soon it was time to leave him there. As we waited to be escorted through the double locked doors, the hall phone began to ring. A woman appeared wearing a long purple sweater and opera-length pearls. She picked up the phone and began to speak gibberish with a Slavic accent. She chattered, listened, and then hung up. As she walked away, we saw that she was naked from the waist down. Wow. My mother's eyes widened. That's who answers the hall phone. <laughs> the security guard appeared and escorted us through the maze of doors and foyers until we met with the cool air. Call anytime, my mother squealed, bending at the waist with her arms crossed over herself. By the time we walked across the parking lot, we were laughing so hard, our faces were slick with tears. Um, now I introduce my colleagues here. Lauren Francis Sherman is the author of Till the Well Runs Dry, her first novel, awarded the Honor Fiction Prize by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. She's the assistant director of Red Lopes Writers Conference and is currently working on her sophomore novel to be published by Grove Atlantic in March, in May of next year, and it sounds absolutely delicious. Um, Katya Dielse, the Elise is a fiction writer born in Haiti. Her short stories, essays, and Pushcart Prize-nominated poetry appear in numerous literary journals and anthologies, including Caribbean writer Phoebe and Meridians. She's taught in Baltimore City's public school system for 14 years and served as Goucher College's spring 2017 Kratz Writer in Residence. She's the author of the critically acclaimed short story collection, Drifting, her latest novel, Mouths Don't Speak, continues to receive high praise from critics and readers. Lauren? Who had earned her master's degree. 
three by the time I was 15. And when Ma was accepted into her doctoral program and Daddy did what was expected of a man like him, Ma shamed him, spared him the shame of divorce, and instead sent his mistress a handwritten note about what to do at nights when he choked in his sleep. Just knock him on the forehead, she wrote. <laughs> Demented, dementia, day used to convey something as lacking or without. Men's meaning sense or mind, demands, which to me sounded very much like demons, for my mother seemed often a woman possessed, possessed by an uncertainty that had never been hers before. My mom, who was once so certain of herself that she rewired our house for stereo sound only with a radio shack manual. This mother of mine didn't remember her own name. I had been an only child and was raising a boy alone when Ma came to live with us. I didn't want to take care of her. This was not something one said. And yet, I didn't want anyone to say that I had not. Ma had always been honest about the burdens of motherhood. When I told her about my pregnancy and my intention to quit law school, she told me I'd been her greatest cross and would also be her greatest failure. Children, right to know. You're gonna wake up and your mind won't be your own. You'll feel hungry when that baby's hungry. You won't remember what you want or what you used to enjoy. Somebody will ask you what makes you happy and you won't know. You'll see. Raising my child will be an honor. I'm not you, I said. You believe that? Which part? She laughed and told me to call the clinic. My mother's laughter used to embarrass me. She didn't laugh often, but when she did, it was hearty and throaty. My childhood friend Simone once said that my mother's laugh was uncouth. When I asked Mom what that meant, she said it meant ghetto. <laughs> that devoured mother of hers must have told her that, Mom said. I'm going to bake them a cake and put a big black laughing face on it. My mother giggled herself to sleep when she returned from leaving it on Simone's doorstep. Get it away, Mom waved her hands about her face now. I ate already. Often, Mom did not remember to eat did not remember having eaten. Every morning before I took Charles to school, Ma protested when I set her blue plastic breakfast plate down before her. You're trying to make me fat like you. <laughs> yes, Ma, I gained weight. I had put on 36 pounds since she took over the first floor of my house. I couldn't afford new clothes, so zippers remained unzipped, buttons remained unbuttoned. Nine pounds for each year you've been here, I mean. A year after she moved in, Mom began to shout each evening at sundown. They told me this would happen, and yet, this was when I began to dislike my own mother's face. A monstrous, sunken mask, it seemed to me. Cheeks sagging, a deflated balloons, jowls plunging like a memory, a quicksand in which lost things would never be found. And in the whites behind the black peoples, there seemed no life in me, only the reflection of my own soured and exhausted expression. My childhood friend Simone had a mother with a face from a Spiegel's catalog. Her name was also Simone. This name recycling was something my mother said one did when one thought too much of oneself. Ma said Miss Simone thought too much of herself. Miss Simone was the sort of woman that the boys in the corner post whispered about. She had sharp, Nordic features, but her skin shone the color of Werther's butterscotch. A fine woman, my father said once when Ma plated his food. My mother didn't disagree, but she made sure to give Daddy only one dumpling of his chicken that <laughs> Simone's father worked as an engineer in Trinidad. When he arrived in the United States, he couldn't secure a better job than hauling parts at Union Carbide on the night shift. He spoke three languages, and Miss Simone expected she would have a good housekeeping kind of life. 
after she realized her husband would come to nothing much, Miss Simone took to having an affair with a bearded Frenchman who taught physics at Hopkins. This ended when Simone's father left a buffed machete on the passenger seat of the professor's restored BMW with a note that read, Made in Trinidad. Outside of receiving Ma's initial diagnosis, I found myself not surprised when Miss Simone began her weekly visits. Most surprised when Miss Simone began her weekly visits. She drove on Sundays from her retirement town home in Pennsylvania to the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Together, my mother and Miss Simone watched Lifetime Television. You should call little Simone, Miss Simone said each week before she left. I'm sure she'd like to tell you some things. I hadn't spoken to little Simone in over 20 years. I didn't tell Miss Simone that I followed her daughter's posts on Instagram, that I thought that except for the unfortunate loss of her natural eyebrows, little Simone was just as cute as when we were little girls. I told myself that speaking to Simone would remind me of my mother's better days and make the pain of losing her worse, but I knew it was more than that. I can't come over no more, little Simone told me one early summer's day in the alley behind my house. Someone had left their hose running, and I recalled the sound of trickling water like a brook, babbling. My dad said, you can't ever come over again, either. We were 13, and we'd been spending every Saturday night at each other's homes since we were four years old. We had shared sake for our chicken television dinners, took baths in my mother's rusted tub, French kissed the same big-headed boys, hated the same stuck-up girls. It doesn't matter whether it's a boy or a girl or a dog. The heart makes no distinctions like that, my mother had said. That summer, my mother was the kindest she'd ever been to me. She told me I was better off without Simone, and Ma left me alone to cry in peace of my bedroom with only the blue long light of space invaders to feed my crushed spirit. When I emerged two inches taller in the fall of my freshman year, I was a girl hell-bent on proving Simone Sanders and her roti-eating father wrong about me. I studied my way out of the city's best public high school and then went on to the Ivy League. I was near the top of my class when in my second year of law school, I met a boy who was more likely to have married a Simone than a me. A boy whose stepfather had a house and a vineyard. A boy who never knew I had a son. Ma said she would not help me take care of my baby. I told myself she deserved to live her life as she wished, but I was angry. As I pumped breast milk into bottles and shuttled Charles between daycares, Mom went to swim, took karate, studied French. You only study French if you plan on going to France. Maybe I'll go to France, she said. You're never going to France. I was sometimes an awful child to my mother. As a grandmother, Mom offered only what was needed and nothing more. Charles was seven years old the first time I had to call Mom for assistance. I was homesick with the flu. Charles couldn't find his violin in the music room at school and missed his ride home. I had enrolled Charles in one of those fancy private schools like Simone once attended, with rolling hills and white people who traveled to Utah for skiing on long weekends. The gap between the tuition and the aid they offered was so wide I thought every month I'd drown in it. But I had pieced together a life for Charles and I that at a far enough distance looked much like the life I would have had if I had done it all right. I regretted needing to call Mom. I knew she'd sashay herself onto that campus and shatter the suburban mom image I carefully cultivated with her Baltimore City church lady air. I had to tell her how to manage the carpool circle, how she mustn't be on the phone or let her car idle, how she must make sure to use her emergency brake when she stopped on the steep hill. I'm not a goddamn child, she screamed. And all the years I've taken my mother's words on the chin, 
should have known something was wrong, but I didn't think much of it until after she called me from the school. I hit somebody, and now he's calling the police. The police? Who did you hit? Some man in a fucking Mercedes Benz who's cursing me like I crucified Jesus. Did you hit him from the rear? No, head on. And the boy in his front seat didn't have a seatbelt on. That's not my goddamn fault. It took away my license. She'd had more accidents than I'd known. One in New York City, another in Virginia Beach, two in Pennsylvania. Baltimore Gas and Electric had turned off her lights, her taxes had gone unpaid, she'd been sending money to a sweet-talking Nigerian prince in Trenton. I'd hoped it was a benign tumor, that she could be fixed up, made right again, but after the diagnosis three times checked, I knew there was nothing that could be made right. Daddy came to visit mom once. She seemed to remember him and repeated the story over and again and daddy not knowing the difference between a cucumber and a zucchini. Ma told him he was a man and when he stopped speaking and his big body sunk into the car seat, Ma didn't care about his quiet, didn't notice when he left. But Ma always noticed when Miss Simone arrived. My mother smiled and reached for words that sounded feathery on her lips. One Sunday, as Miss Simone ready to leave, I thanked her again for not forgetting about Ma it seemed everyone else had. Your mother was everything I wanted. And then Miss Simone's voice trailed off at to be. After Miss Simone left Charles left, Charles fed Ma chopped chicken breast from his plate. The nighttime aide hadn't yet arrived, so Charles kept Ma busy with the story about a boy at school who had tied a shirt around Charles's neck like a noose. Charles didn't tell Ma how he'd cried how I'd held him in the back of my car and sensed that those white boys might have smelled that barely keeping it together scent I'd passed on to my son. Charles told Ma that I'd scolded the boy's mother, telling her that nooses weren't playthings for black boys. Grandma, she sounded just like you, he said. My mother smiled, removing the chicken from her mouth, setting it on the tablecloth. That Simone's got big, beautiful nipples, the color of big peach cobbler, she said. Charles stared at his grandmother, not certainly heard her correctly. <laughs> it's the disease, Charles. This is not grandma talking. I told him this many times before. Charles blushed and went to his room to finish his studies. <laughs> that night, I found little Simone on Facebook Messenger and asked if I could call it the next day. Hi. This is, this to me is one of the books. It means so much. And I think it's going to mean so much to so many people. Um, although I, unlike some other people, have had experience with family members who have suffered and they do very well with this awful, awful disease. And I, truly hope that at some point, like so many other horrible diseases, that we'll be able to find something and a way to alleviate the pain that goes with this. Uh, I'm very thankful to you, Marita Golden. This is a precedented work, and I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity to be a part of it. Um, I love you. I'm happy you're here, and the library is gorgeous.
Jess, and I'll have to be here. And if I would find my story in here, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> and I kind of got lost in my way here. And I really have to think about that. You know, imagine being in a place that you know, familiar with it, and driving down the road and wondering, is this it? This, this can't be it. And I'm looking for the the street name, and, and it just, as familiar as it looked, it looked just as unfamiliar. And I really had to think about that and how clearly I cannot fathom what it must be like to be in the throes, the full uh, experience of this disease, but just, if you can, just imagine. So my story is called Golden Anniversary. And I was so glad that I wrote it because the golden, but um, <laughs> but again, the golden anniversary, the 50th, right? Mm -hmm. And I will read it for you. It's very short, and uh, very short. Says, As I waited at the altar for you to walk down the aisle, the palms of my hands moistened, and my entire being trembled. I pray that you have not had a change of heart, and my deepest wish would materialize before a hundred expectant witnesses. There was music, soft, fleeting, piano, maybe. I'm not good at remembering details. You are the one who stores them like a boobah trees water, and it's in its your brown skin shone under the Caribbean sun that never pretends to be forgiven. The bridemaids smiled. The groomsmen behaved their emotions behind stony faces, but the tenderness in your eyes betrayed them. I was 26. You were 25. We were both full of life and ready to embark on our journey. When at last I slipped the ring around your finger, I was transformed. Angels carried my breath on their wings during our first kiss as husband and wife, keeping me from drowning in bliss. There was applause when we danced our first of men and dances. I whispered in your ears that on the day of our golden anniversary, we would dance like this to the same melody. You whispered, honey, this moment is all we have. Tomorrow is but a fantasy. I should have believed you. When family members and friends tacitly boasted about their new cars, the houses they lived in, the seaside residences with panoramic views of the distant horizon. I wanted you to have more. But you delighted in lacking ephemeral things which tend to own people instead of the other way around. We have each other, you said. Our love is all the currency we really need. You were not nice, you were just sensible. You cautioned me never to float above my means, 
You predicted that the future, if such a time came, may be fraught with the unexpected. We would be prepared to face hard times bravely. As long as we stayed together, every battle would end, it would end in victory. There would be no regrets, only musings of extraordinary moments together. I never imagined that on our golden anniversary, Rain would pour out of the sky and catch us without shelter. For half a century, we weathered life's storms. We survived. We even thrived. We were well prepared, but we could not have known a nightmare like this would befall us. The disease began slowly, almost imperceptibly. The doctors said it is not uncommon among people in their autumnal years. He said that at first you will not recall where you put the keys and where you parked the car in the parking lot, which by the way I do not. <laughs> not in the story, but true. But I was always the forgetful one. You were the one who would remind me to call my own parents on their birthdays long ago when they were still alive. You. You were the one who wrote textbooks and helped me organize my scattered thoughts. You, you were the one born an old soul, sensible and wise. Now, you put the carton of milk under the kitchen sink. The eggs, the eggs are on the bookshelf and the cell phone is in the refrigerator. When we're supposed to go to bed, you open the front door ready to wander into the night. You lose your way around the home we shared for 50 splendid years. And even though you're here, I feel that I've lost you. Be gentle with her, the doctor said superfluously, as if I need to be reminded. Does Eddie know that I promise to hold and cherish you in sickness and in health? Doesn't he know that I am a man of my word? Treasure trove of memories that always flowed from the wellspring inside of you has been ransacked, has been vandalized. When your eyes are not vacant, you stare at me as if I were a stranger. To be fair, I have changed. There were deep creases around my mouth and eyes, but I could not have changed so much that you would not recognize me. Our life savings are remembrances. Our memories have been stolen. Your collection of ancient tales that were passed down to you like priceless heirlooms have dissolved into the thin and visible air. You used to love talking about the history of your birth country. You could recount verbatim chapters from books about the only successful slave revolution known to man. We made pumpkin soup every New Year's Day to celebrate Haiti's independence in 1804. Now the holidays run one into another and hold no special meaning. When people disparage your birth country, you would hush them with the same detailed lectures you spent decades perfecting at the university. It pleased you to impart knowledge to thousands of white-eyed students who adored you. The history, 
The history of beloved Haiti is no longer with you, is it? You've forgotten the names of the founding fathers and mothers, haven't you? I watched as you search your mind for answers to questions that you once formulated, but nothing comes. Our 50 years together have plummeted irretrievably into a murky pool at the bottom of a canyon, but I did not ask you to reach that far into the unknown. It would not be safe. I asked you to reach that far. I could not do it. But I would reach in with my arms. My arms are useless unless you are in them. The doctor says it's not unusual for someone with your condition to forget his or her own name now and again. Why should he expect you to remember your name when I spent decades calling you sweetheart, darling, honey, my love, anything but the one on our marriage certificate? Those hundred witnesses at our weddings 50 years ago, they're not here, but I, I am and always will be. There are no groomsmen today, no bridesmaids. I want to play our song, but I have trusted you to remind me melody. I will wait for you. I will wait for you at this altar in silence, praying that you will have a change of heart and emerge from the labyrinth where you reside now. I will wait until you return, if only for a brief moment. I will wait to dance with you. I want you to dance with me to the rhythm
the people I'd like to talk about very much, but um, but it's there. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the sense that um, that despite not wanting to do this, I must I must do this. Um, yeah, I mean, you had a caregiver in that story who was not engaged in self care, which is kind of the number one issue. Um, I think even before caregivers care for the person with Alzheimer's, they really have to care for themselves. And in, our, and in the African American community, we don't have a long tradition of self care for a multitude of reasons. But I really appreciated the, the real honesty of that character and that situation. I am witnessing uh, presently a family member who was a keeper of families. And it's funny because his mother passed away recently at the age of 103 plus 11 months and what is it, 30 days and 9 hours. She was just right there being 104. And I love Yaya. And if I ever wanted to thread a needle, I could put on 15 eyeglasses and couldn't do it. And I would take it to her. And Yaya, I know how to thread needles. She had all my teeth and was very proud of it. Just awesome. And watched um, one of her children experience this. It's just it's devastating. And also, the other thing that I found being an Asian person and watching, uh, knowing my elders back home, I didn't really see this back home. Not that I would have understood it, but my experience with it and the Asian people have been elderly who have been plucked from Haiti. I would say it's like having a full grown tree and you just uprooted and then bring it here. So that's pretty much what I've seen is people just really wanting to go back home and then experiencing this problem. Well, that's how I've always understood it. But it is it is so much more um, serious and affects just all of us across races, across well, there's only one human race, but you know, I mean, across cultures and so forth. Yeah, 50 million people have more
I also want to focus on music as melody. I've been noticing when I have friends who are dealing with family members with dementia and Alzheimer's and moving into that twilighting stage, et cetera, mm -hmm. that music kind of brings them back. Definitely. Can you all fold music into your all's experiences? Definitely. I mean, they, they wow. show that, they're starting to show that music really does have a powerful calming effect on the lives of people with dementia and Alzheimer's when they are agitated. Um, music, playing music, listening to music, activates more parts of the brain than any other thing that you can do. So, music is really, really very powerful. Um, I think that studies have shown also that it's even more effective when the music is music that has special meaning for the person. Like say, if they like classical music, or if they love Motown. So that that music resonates with their spirit, their soul, and really dialogues with what they're going through. Yeah, so that, that's very all right, good evening. Um, thank you for you guys coming here. I, you guys represent something special to me. I've been reading about Miss um, Golden, and Miss Yulis is a compatriot. And, um, I do have your book, so you can sign it for me. But, um, but I have um, a personal connection with um, Alzheimer's. My name is um, Sholen Josue. I am a neuropsychiatrist, um, and that, that's my specialty. Um, we can talk about a lot of things about what I've seen when I meet my patients. Um, lately, I've been moving more into integrative medicine, which we call holistic. Mm -hmm. And what you, you meant, Katya, is that I always ask my patients, what are the undercurrent of the family, the fabric uh, that keeps people together? that maintains memory. So one question, I'm, uh, a field I'm involving now, how do you guys think that using self-compassion could help not only the caregiver, but the family sustain itself as far as when you're going through these things? The practice of self-compassion towards, compassion of, towards oneself, and also you mentioned resentment. And that's what we know that self-compassion can help us. How, how, how do you guys think that including that into the caring involving the whole family? Yes, you're talking about self-love. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I do make a difference <laughs> neuroscience-wise yeah. between self-compassion self and self-love. Yes. Like but, yes, but, so, self but, yes, but thanks. And self-love is even kind of struggle yeah. for African-descended people in the new world. And that's and, what I mean. Yeah. And, I think that, for example, last night I did a program and we were talking about the inability of people to ask for help. And I was saying that many people who have someone they're caring for feel that they only can ask the people in their biological family. They can't ask anyone outside the family, which is not true. Um, many, many people who've been their friends, their neighbors, would, would be actually honored to come in and offer some kind of support. But in the African-American community specifically, we don't want people to know our business. We have a whole issue around maintaining status. We may not have much money, but we have our privacy. And this is a um, dynamic that you find no matter the class. Ministers of church, a mega church, 
will not want anyone to know if they're suffering from a disease, loss of status. Someone in the poorest part of Baltimore or Washington will not want anyone to know their business. So there's some cultural, emotional, and psychological changes that we, specifically Americans, are going to have to adapt in order to address the demands of the disease. And we find also in the African-American community, women, for example, who are caring for someone and don't want any help. So much of their identity is hung up or invested in caring for mom, lifting 300-pound dad out of bed and almost breaking their back, that they do not want help. And I um, often, I feel that people need counseling. Um, people with characteristics in the whole system. First, they have to recognize that they need the system. They have to acknowledge that they need support. Then they have to expand their idea of what the support is, looks like, and where it comes from. And counseling, as you're going through the daily process, grieving, I think is really, really important. I totally agree with uh, Maria. I, I do think that Maria, when she was meeting earlier, um, there was something that, that, that came up about um, her conversation with May and getting to know May on a deeper level. Um, and sort of this disease sometimes allows people to see people in ways that they hadn't been able to see, the things that come out of, um, of the mouths that wouldn't have come out when there's so much more guardedness. Um, you know, that's true for my grandmother-in-law, that's true for May, um, and the story that she shared with Maria. And um, my character, I didn't read the whole story for you, but, um, but my character also finds things out about her mother that she would never and know but for this disease and that utterance that she that um, that I that I mentioned at the last um, in the last paragraph um, that in itself can lead to compassion that sort of um, the walls down gives you some space to be able to look at this person and be reminded that they are um, a real person with a history and love in their hearts and um, and despite the resentment of, of the, and the, the burden, the burden that you that you are taking care. I think there are moments, glimmers, moments with every child, with, with every caregiver where they recognize that this is someone um, that they love, that used to love them and, and, and used to care for them. Um, um, that doesn't happen every second of every day, but 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 recognizing that you will have those moments of resentment, but you can also grind your way back to love is really important. Just allowing yourself not to feel guilty because you're angry that you're here in this place. I think that's a big, big part of it. So, um, but you know, it's hard to get there alone without, as Maria said, um, counseling and, and um, or being able to just talk it through with someone. And there is a lot of shame um, with this disease and a lot of shame for the caregivers as well. But in my culture, or at least in my family, we 
culture. Uh, we have psychiatrists, psychologists, but people suffering from diseases which someone like our Philadelphian male would prefer to hide this problem while they seek help. And so um, I remember stories of, I remember stories being told of certain family members who were just pretty much put away in these little special rooms or because, you know, grandpa had had this problem, especially in, in my um, culture, there's several other elements that were playing to it. I think that person was um, really on the road for things that that person possessed or something like that. And so the help, the necessary help, would not be given. I mean, even now, we're not sure, we're not sure exactly how to help. And I believe about, I agree with the, the um, resentment that plays a part of this. And I recognize also the difficulty in labeling itself love. And even though it is, you know, scientific terms of self compassion, but in my culture particularly, there's an enormous amount of guilt to even pretend to care for oneself and a tiny bit more than somebody else. And so we self-sacrifice. Um, and I, I wish, in which case, both people are, you know, falling through um, falling into this. So it's difficult to offer the help that is necessary to the person who really needs it. Because in a sense, both the, the person who's able to provide that help has to hide. And just as you said, you know, it just encompasses or through all the classes. We don't want people to know. We're not going to put our business out there for the world to see. But then we're going to hide this and deal with it to the best of our abilities, which doesn't help uh, either the person who's suffering from the illness and the caregiver. But then you have two people really getting uh, hurt by this one awful disease. Okay, we have time for one last question. Good evening. I'm Victoria Kennedy. So nice to, uh, to be here and listen when, on the subject. I think it touches a lot of families. And as you all are, were saying, a lot of families within the black community Four people within my family were affected by uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And I just wanted to know that within your research, uh, Ms. Golden, when you were researching uh, even before this anthology, did you find that there were a lot of people affected who worked in careers that had to do with like education uh, or people who were highly educated? Because that was the case with three out of the four family members of mine, from professors to uh, principal, you know, it, it seemed like it had a, I don't know if it was disproportionate or not, so I wanted to know, like, in your research, did, was that part of your findings? Well, actually, no. Um, Alzheimer's is an equal opportunity disease. Mm -hmm. um, I think that what happens is that you're shocked when a person of high level education mm -hmm. or high level intellectual career achievement mm -hmm. develops Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Because um, if a person who um, 
say, is a janitor or someone who cannot manifest uh, distinguished you know, artistic or intellectual abilities. We really relate to the disease kind of differently with that. But we're very shocked and we feel it's doubly cruel yes. for a person of great intellectual achievement or artistic endeavor to develop the disease. But in actuality, Alzheimer's does not care. It doesn't care if you're a Harvard professor like Charles Ogletree. Yes. It doesn't care. Um, in the African American community, among the reasons why we are disappointed and affected um, that there's a gene, the ABCA7 gene, which in African Americans gives us an extra opportunity to develop the disease. Everybody has a gene that we could develop also. Most people still it. So we have the gene that everybody else has. Then we have an additional gene that predisposes us towards that. Then in addition, we suffer from the, our bodies, I feel, are incubators for the, the poorest health in this country. The long history of enslavement, segregation, lack of access to all kinds of opportunities in healthcare basically breeds in our bodies more cancer, more diabetes, more obesity, more of the things that kill our brains and kill our bodies. So our bodies bear witness, I feel, to what we have experienced in this country. So um, Alzheimer's affects us more, and that's why it's so important that we get involved in the clinical trials. With all these clinical trials, we're only 3% of the people enrolled in clinical trials to find a cure. And we need to be enrolled in them because what's happening is the drugs are being created, but they have to be tested on us. So when they're on the market and we take them, the first time we take them, we're being tested. Stephen, that's another area of paranoia within the black community. Yeah, absolutely. An experimentation right. with drugs. But the fact is that if you go to, for example, this auditorium was full, and I said, you know, Dr. Goldberg, who's a very good friend of mine and a major researcher, is looking for black people to be enrolled in a clinical trial for Alzheimer's. 80% of the people in this room would say yes, even despite the Tuskegee experiments. And all the experimentation, if African Americans know that the tests are going to be open, honest, that after the, their sample is taken, people will continue to be in touch with them, they, the, the blood will just be drawn and then they'll be forgotten. As long as they know that it's going to be transparent and honest, black people will sign up. But the problem is that they aren't very often asked. They are not asked in the settings where we live, where yeah. we play, where we are. But there, the myth that we will not participate, no, we will. It's just that we aren't solicited as often as we need to be. So there's a lot of work to be done. But the good news is that of all the findings about Alzheimer's, the most heartening is that the simple things like exercise, movement, and a good diet are medicine that will, that will 
keep Alzheimer's at bay. If you have it in your family, you may, you could get it, it may skip you. But no matter what, move, eat fresh foods. And one, I'll never forget, one researcher said that if he had to choose the one thing that would keep a person from getting Alzheimer's, it would be to have a wide and diverse network of friends and family that they care about. Because connecting with people, enjoying people, laughing, meeting new people, keeps all this going. So live a good life, eat good food, go to the doctor and move. <laughs> podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.